worship team. We are in a series this summer in the book of Proverbs, and we're going to read through Proverbs chapter 2. Last week was our first sermon in this series. So Proverbs chapter 2, pretty much in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, page 528, you can find Proverbs 2 in the blue Bible that's in front of you. Proverbs are uh, pieces of wisdom, part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, written primarily by Solomon, the son of David, uh, known as the wisest man in the world. So Proverbs chapter 2, let's stand together as we read through this chapter. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding... Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil, from the men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversiveness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the ways of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. Most of you probably can remember 
in school or just on YouTube watching this amazing thing called Metamorphosis. Remember this ugly, wrinkly, green caterpillar? It spends his whole life eating leaves. And then one day he hangs from the bottom of a leaf and he makes a cocoon. And then over, depending on what the, the caterpillar is and, the, and it, what, it, what it turns into, the butterfly, it might be in this cocoon for a week. Some are in there for like 100 days. But either way, what pops out from, from this ugly green caterpillar is this beautiful butterfly. And we call that process metamorphosis. You remember that. And metamorphosis literally means to, to change shape. You go from looking one way to looking a different way. And my question for us today is, how do humans change shape? How do we metamorph? How do we go from looking one way to another way? And basically, the book of Proverbs outlines that, and particularly we get the first few steps here in chapters 1 and chapter 2 of how humans begin to grow, how we begin to change, how we go from being simple. If you see that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22, oh, how long are you going to be simple? How long are you going to be the grubby green caterpillar? And, and how can you change from that into something beautiful, some, something wise? Well, how do you do that? How do you do that change? And the steps, uh, the first few steps are here in these first couple of chapters. And then you begin to see what happens if you take these first few steps. So I want to take a look at the first couple of steps and then notice some changes that begin if you take these first few steps. Very first, and we talked about this some last week, the very first step to going from simple down the pathway of wisdom rather than the, down the pathway of foolishness, the very first step is the hardest step for most people. And that's to just say out loud, I'm simple. I'm a grubby green caterpillar. I'm mostly consuming things for myself. If I don't have the help of God Almighty, I'm going to end up being a fool. And I have to have some kind of help outside of myself. If God doesn't intervene, my life is going to be locked into a life of foolishness. So the very first step is to confess, to say out loud that you're simple, that you need help. But listen carefully, the first visible sign of someone willing to change is confession. The first visible sign of someone who's willing to change is to confess. And here's how I want to define this confession in terms of what we're thinking about biblically. To first say, I'm responsible for my words and behavior without excuse and without blame shifting. So I'm responsible. I'm taking responsibility for myself. I'm not going to shift it off to anybody else. And then I recognize, and this is key, I recognize the greatest dangers to myself exist within myself. The greatest dangers to myself exist within myself. The greatest dangers I face do not involve other people. Do not involve other circumstances. I'm not saying there aren't dangerous people or dangerous circumstances, but the greatest dangers you face is you. 
The biggest problem you face every morning is the person you see in the mirror. Not the person left in bed, not the person down the hallway, not your boss, not your neighbor, not the president, not any of those people. The biggest problem in your life is you. And that's so hard to say. That is so hard to say because we're just naturally bent into feeling like I'm not really the main problem. The main problem is someone else. But you have to take responsibility for yourself. You have to recognize that you're your biggest problem. Confession is so counterintuitive. It's so unnatural. What's, what comes naturally is believing that my biggest problem is somebody else. That's very natural for me. What's natural for me is, is believing that if anything goes wrong, mostly it was somebody else's fault. I mean, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that or maybe I shouldn't have done that. But, you know, the reason I did it is you or that reason. That's so natural for me. It's very unnatural to start pointing at myself as the main problem. But when we confess, the center of gravity begins to shift. It shifts off of ourselves and onto God. We, we confess we're the main problem, and then we start looking outside of ourselves for some kind of help, and that's where God comes in. We shift away from self-glorification, always needing to be right, always having to justify our actions, to God-glorification. Whatever God says is right. Which is why in Proverbs chapter 1, the key verse, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is what? That's the beginning. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of knowledge. See, the, the, the beginning of your wisdom or the beginning of knowledge doesn't start with yourself. It starts with the fear of the Lord, this healthy fear of the Lord. And so as I said last week and probably mentioned several times as the series goes, goes along, one of the, the, main, the, the two main people I'm thinking about as I go through this series is my niece and my nephew, Jack and Jenna. So Jack is 13 and Jenna is 15. And so I'm thinking about them a lot when I think about this because the whole book of Proverbs is asking people to turn here, to turn into the, to, to, to God's workshop, to, to be shaped into somebody beautiful. And when you're 13 and 15, whether you're my niece or nephew or you're just any other middle school or high school student, you're on the verge of, of getting into the, uh, that adult world. And I'm, I'm pleading with them and I'm pleading with you to turn into this place. And the first turn you have to take is to say, I'm the biggest problem with myself, not somebody else. See, because when you become a teenager, you, you become more self-aware. Everybody remembers this. This is why when you're in fourth grade, it doesn't take any time to get dressed. But when you're 14, man, you spend a day trying to figure out what you're going to wear tomorrow, right? When I was in Young Life, we take these uh, trips and we take kids to camp. And I don't know why this one guy wanted to come get dressed in my room. He, I don't know if it was the other guy. I don't know what it was. But he would come in and he would spend what seemed like an hour on his hair. So it's 730 in the morning. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. And, he, and this is what drove me crazy. He talked the whole time. I hope he's not visiting here today. And he would work on his hair. And then right as he left, he put a hat on. I'm like, dude, 
You got a hat on your head. He had a hat on his head all the time. But you see, he was super self-aware. Every little thing had to be just in place. So as he exited the door and he had 400 high school students at his beck and call, he looked just right. That happens to a lot of teenagers. They become much more self-aware. What do people think of me? What do I think of me? What do I think of other people? And a common problem associated with this, this new self-awareness, is that you tend to see other people as your main problems. So suddenly my parents are really my main problem. My teacher, they're the main problem at school. My pastor, he's a problem. Maybe my uncle, of course not my niece and nephew. But they're problems I'm not really the problem. The problems are existing outside of me. And when those problems exist outside of you, you start shifting the blame. Oh, of course I didn't do well on that test, but it's because of the teacher. Whatever the problem is, it always gets shifted off to someone else. Now, all of this is very routine. Everybody who's gone through this understands. Everybody who's a parent of a teenager understands this is what happens. But I just want to say, somewhere along the way, if you're a teenager, if, if a shift does not occur in your life, if you do not begin to shift the focus off of yourself and onto the Lord, you become a very unpleasant person to live with as an adult. And most of us have met people like that. Some of us have married people like that. The shift never occurred. And so now you have an adult who still is blame shifting. It's never really their problem. It's always the problem of an employer. It's a problem of a spouse. It's a problem of my kid. If my boss was better, if my wife was better, if my kids were better, I'm perfect. And these are people are are really uncomfortable people to spend time with. And so I'm just saying, this is a shift. This is a step. This is the, the first thing to say is I've got to get outside of myself and I've got to see that God's wisdom from the outside can come in and begin to, to change my life. The first step is a simple person confesses that they're naturally foolish and they need God. The second step, Proverbs 2, 1 through 4. Let's reread those first four verses. My son... This is the second step. Receive my words. Treasure up my commandments. Make your ear attentive. Incline your heart to understanding. Call out for insight. Raise your voice. Seek it like silver. Search for it as for hidden treasure. Solomon couldn't have been any clearer here. Seven times in four verses, he basically says the same thing. Once you've admitted that you're simple, then the next step you have to take is you have to make an all-out effort to go after God's wisdom. Do you see that? Treasure it up. Store it up. Make your ear attentive. Incline your heart. Call out for it. Raise your voice. Seek it like silver. Search for it like a hidden treasure. This is an all-out effort to go after God's wisdom. Now, we see this call for all-out effort all the way through the Bible. Let me just mention two places for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. Some of us will know this verse. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
What are those plans? To prosper you, to not harm you, to give you a hope and a future. A lot of us have this memorized. A lot of us have it on a plaque or somewhere. But I hope you realize repeating this verse isn't like abracadabra. Right? I think sometimes it gets treated like a magic formula. Well, you know what Jeremiah 29, 11 says? I'm going to have a wonderful future. What does Jeremiah 29, 12 say? Call on me. Come. Pray to me. You will find me when you seek me with what? Half of your heart. Uh, no. You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Do you see all these things God is promising? They're going to come true as you seek after God with all of your heart, as you make this all-out effort. It's not a magic formula. It's not just, I pray Jeremiah 29, 11, and the next day all things wonderful happen. No, you've got to pursue after God. You've got to seek it like it's silver. You've got to think it's treasure. It's more important than anything else in your life. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul He's talking to people who are believers. He's come there. He's preached to them. Now they're part of this new church. And he's saying, this is how, how I, Paul, pursue Jesus. And Corinth was the home of Olympic athletes. So this is what he says. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And what does he say? Run in such a way as to get that prize. Run. Make every effort. Train yourselves. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. See, they shape their life around it. They, they found a treasure and they begin to shape their whole life around it. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that lasts forever. Therefore, I'm disciplining my body and I'm making it my slave. I'm not going to be a slave to the snooze button. I have to get up and I have to read God's word in the morning. And so many times you just say, oh, but tomorrow, today, last night, I just, I, and day after day and week after week, and you're not growing in wisdom. And you quote Jeremiah 29, 11. It doesn't work that way. You've got to train yourself. You have to make every effort. You have to seek after it. And and fathers, on Father's Day, this is what your children desperately need to see you doing. They've got to see you get up early in the morning. They've got to hear you talk about it as the day goes by. It's not something just because they go to a Christian school or you have Caleb on. That's not enough. You have to do it. And as you do it, you're creating a wake that your kids get in behind. So you have to seek after. It's got to be like a treasure. It's got to be like training like a race. Like a world-class athlete, you, you purposely and systematically now design your life around it. Now, now every high school student here who's going to play a fall sport, you're going to play soccer, you're going to play volleyball, you're going to play football. You're going to play tennis. I think those are the fall sports. You know this, don't you? 
You can't just decide, you know what, you know, I think uh, August the 26th is the first day. That's when I'm going to pick up a racket. Uh, you're not going to make the team. That's the first time I'm going to kick a ball. Uh, you know what, you're not going to make the team. What do you have to be doing right now? You have to purposefully and systematically begin to orient your life so that two months from now, when it's time to go out for the team, you've made all this effort and there's a chance that you might make the team. We, we know this. It requires discipline. The word Jesus uses for those who follow after him is disciples or discipleship. In other words, he understands that when, you're follow, when he says, come follow me, he understands that what it's going to take is your all-out effort. You're going to have to purposefully and systematically orient your lives around him. Dallas Willard has kind of a sobering assessment of where we are in the Western church today. He's a Christian writer and philosopher. Here's what he says. For at least several decades now, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or even intended to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. In fact... Many think you can remain a Christian without any signs of progress in discipleship. For many churches, discipleship has clearly become optional. In my opinion, most problems in the contemporary church can be explained by the fact that the members have not yet decided to follow Christ. Do you see what he's saying? You just say something and you become a Christian, but it's not really intended that you would systematically and purposefully orient your lives around it. And therefore, we have all these problems in the church. And Willard is suggesting that most of the problems is because you have a lot of members, but not many of them are Christians. They're mostly worldly. They've systematically and purposefully designed their lives around themselves. The first significant Sign of change is confession. I can't do it. I, I've got to have outside help. That outside help comes with the grace of God. And the second sign is now I'm making an effort. I'm becoming a disciple. Dallas Willard says God's saving grace is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. If you struggle to identify ways that you have purposefully arranged your life around Jesus, you might ask yourself this morning, am I following Jesus? If you struggle to identify ways that you've purposely arranged your life around Jesus, you might ask yourself, am I really following Jesus? You might just be following after yourself. And asking Jesus to bless what you want. If you say that you're simple. If you confess. It's not inside of me. It's it's got to come from the outside. If you begin to to make this effort. And look at one of the phrases here. You've got to. Treasure up or store up. I love that one. I, I could talk, each one of these could kind of be a sermon on how you do it, but you've got to treasure up, or some versions say store up. You've got to stockpile God's wisdom in your heart and mind so that no matter what the situation you find yourself in, you can apply God's word. You can apply his wisdom. Now let's think about this illustration like a clothes closet. 
someone might say, you've got to have a lot of things in that closed closet. Because you never know what kind of occasion you might be asked to call on, right? I mean, I've got to have the right shoes with the right outfit and the right tie or the right belt or the right scarf. I've got to have all these different things in my clothes closet because if I'm asked for, to go for a walk, if I'm asked to go to work, or if I'm asked to go to a wedding, all those things require a different outfit. So you've got to have a big closet with a lot of clothes. Do I hear an amen? Amen. Some people might say that. And I would say it's the same way with your spiritual life. You will be bombarded with situations that need wisdom. And you're going to have to have all kinds of godly wisdom so that when you say, okay, this is, a, this, is this kind of situation, what do I wear? What do I bring out to this situation? See, I might, say, I might ask, what's in your spiritual closet that you can bring out to apply to situations? And for some, it might just be, I've got the John 3.16 suit. That's the only thing I've got. I've got the black dress, right? I've got the blue blazers and the khakis. I've got the one suit. But I love John 3.16. But it's not enough. You cannot apply that verse to every place in your life that you need wisdom. God didn't intend that. That's why he has a whole Bible full of words rather than just one phrase. And You've got to stockpile. You've got to store it up. So that when you come into a situation, think about being 15 in a public high school today. How many opportunities are you going to need for wisdom? Every day, hundreds. How are you going to make your way through that? How is it that a young man keeps his way pure? Psalm 119, how is it? I have stored up, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's got to be in your heart. Because you get out in the places and you've got to know how to apply it. You've got to know how to reach inside that stored up wisdom and say, I think this is how God would want me to act right now. This is what he would want me to say. This is the tone of voice he would want me to use. These, this is the wisdom I want to depart to myself or to my friends. You've got to store it up. You've got to stockpile it. Now, one warning here back in chapter 1, verse 32. Let's look at that. For the simple are killed by their turning away. See, if you decide not to turn towards wisdom, instead you rather rely on your own wisdom, you're killed by turning away from God's wisdom, and the complacency of fools destroys them. So the opposite of this all-out effort is complacency. The word in the Hebrew, interestingly enough, is prosperity. The prosperity of fools destroys them. Prosperity breeds a kind of complacency, which is why I think the translators are using this word here. One way prosperity destroys is it reduces your own hunger and thirst. Wealth is a a great substitute for God. I'm not saying it it is what you should serve. I'm just saying it's just an easy substitute. Because I have hungers or I have thirst or I have needs and I have enough money that basically I can buy the stuff that seems to fill up those empty places in my soul. So wealth easily takes the place of God. 
So you become complacent. You don't really feel like you need to follow after God because you don't have any hunger. You don't have any real thirst. Or you could say so foolishly, well, God's blessed me, so he must be happy with the way I'm living my life. That might be 180 degrees off course. Another way prosperity destroys is prosperity often means you have a lot of stuff. You have a house and a big yard. You have cars. You have a boat. You have a pet. You go to events. You have memberships. You have vacations. You have a garden. You have hobbies. All this stuff isn't bad. Don't email me because you have a garden and a pet. But you you do understand, don't you? The more stuff you have, the more time you have to manage all that stuff. And now I really love the Lord, but I got so much stuff. And I got to get up early and stay up late to manage all my stuff. And I've oriented my life around my pet, but I can't orient my life around the Lord. Do you see how that happens? you, You have a good meaning in your heart that you want to do it, but because you have so much stuff, it just blocks the way. And what does God say to us? That kind of complacency, is it's not a bummer. It destroys your soul. This, this is an emergency if you have this kind of complacency. And he's trying to say, don't, don't allow this stuff, none of which you can take with you to heaven, destroy your soul. It reminds me of this parable in Luke chapter 14. You may remember it, the parable of the great banquet. Remember, Jesus invites everybody to this great banquet, and he sends some people out saying, just just invite these people to come. And the first group of people he invites, they all have excuses. Well, you know, I just got this new job, and I just got this new car, and I just, I just, I can't come right now. They miss the kingdom because of their stuff. Don't be fooled into thinking that as soon as I get all my stuff straightened out, then I'm going to have time. That's how a fool thinks. That's how a fool gets destroyed. So are you running? Are you running in such a way as to get the prize? If I looked at your time schedule, would I see that you've arranged your life around systematically and purposefully to follow hard after God? Number three. What, now, what happens when you take these first steps? You see it, verse 5. Then, see that very first word, then. Back in verse, down in verse 9, then. So some things happen. Then you find knowledge, verse 7. Then you, God will be a shield. Then you will understand every good path, verse 9. Then knowledge and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. How does change take place? You confess that you're simple. You trust in the grace of God. You begin to become a disciple. You rearrange your life after him. And then you begin to feed your soul on God's word. And verse 10, his word becomes pleasant. You feel like, I can't live without it now. I've spent so much time going after what was on television or what was on my phone. And now I can't, I've got a hunger for God's word and it's pleasant to my soul. That's the way change happens. My mother. Four kids, no husband. So she spent her whole life being tired. 
but she was committed to her four children to have the breakfast of champions. So we got down around our table, and what came out? Captain Crunch, Lucky Charms, and Alphabets. That was the breakfast of champions if you were in the Phillips family. Pretty much boxes of sugar cubes, right? So she's so tired, she's like, just here are the three boxes, you make your choice. And, of course, we were like, yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, everybody sort of had their favorite, you know. Mine, Captain Crunch. I loved Captain Crunch. I can still get a good feeling about it right now. This may distract you from the rest of the sermon. But I realized as I got older, thankfully, you can't eat Captain Crunch every morning or your teeth will fall out of your head. You have to develop a new taste for something that's healthier. And you know what I like now? It's really unusual, especially for my family, because like, how can you eat that? I love grape nuts. Now, grape nuts is pretty much gravel (laughs) or ground-up tree bark. It's just no taste at all. But the awesome thing about grape nuts is you can eat the box because it tastes pretty much like what's in the box, (laughs) right? I just have a whole new taste. And I, I, not long ago, I had a bowl of, of Captain Crunch. And you know what I thought? Oh, I can't eat this. The memory of it was way better than the current taste. Why? Because my taste had changed. And you may think right now, it's just so hard for me to memorize one verse. It's so hard for me to have two minutes in the Bible and read it. Okay, just start there. Just start there. Just start beginning to have a different taste. And I promise you, if you just start and you try to make an all-out effort, if you get your friends to help you, you begin to develop a different kind of taste. And, and the stuff that you used to feed on will just be, I can't take that anymore. And what becomes pleasant to your soul is the Word of God. That's what happens. That's, how, that's when you know change is taking place in your own life. One final marker of change, and we'll talk more about this as the series goes along. It delivers us. You see this word in verse 12, verse 16. It delivers us from something. It delivers us from, from the way of evil. From men of perverted speech. Verse 16. It it delivers us from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. You notice the combination. Perverted speech. Smooth words. God's word delivers you from perverted words. God's word delivers you from smooth words. And when you read this verse 12. Perverted speech. Don't think of like dirty jokes. Perverted means twisted or upside down. Or if you remember when we did this, the Sermon on the Mount, the false narratives. I have false narratives. I have truths that are running through my mind that aren't truths. I must be in control. All natural sexual desire is good. My value is determined by the opinion of others. These are all false narratives. They're twisted. And, and we believe them. God's wisdom delivers you from these twisted or false narratives. Verse 16, delivered from these smooth words. 
the, the, the writer understands the powerful connection of our sexual appetite. And smooth, what an excellent word choice. You, you drink in the smooth words of a sexual fantasy or satisfaction. And what you find out is the smoothness is really poison. Verse 18, her house sinks down to death. Her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back. They never get back on the path of life. Smooth words brought down the strongest man in the world, Samson. Smooth words brought down the wisest man in the world, Solomon. Smooth words brought down the man after God's own heart, David. Smooth words can easily slip into your soul. You think, nobody knows. This isn't hurting anybody. This feels so good. This feels so natural. It's leading you down to the path of death and destruction. And what rescues you from that? God's word. His wisdom. Stockpiling it. Searching for it. Seeking after it. Treasuring it. As we go through this summer, you've got to ask yourself, where am I? What's in my closet? Do I have any godly wisdom? What kind of godly wisdom am I lacking? Am I making every effort? Do I need somebody to push me harder? What, what do I need to keep moving in this direction that I can then experience this pleasure of God and be delivered from these twisted, smooth words that could cause our own destruction? Let's pray together. Lord, uh, so much um, material here. And some people here are, they've turned away from the way of the, the, the Lord and they really are enjoying the way of the world and they don't realize they're on the, the road of destruction. So I pray that you would help them see today that that they are on a collision course of disaster. And you, you would, by your grace, reorient them to help them see themselves as a fool. To need your wisdom, to trust in you, to follow after you, then to to make every effort to, to reorient their lives towards you. For those who are complacent, boy, would this be the day that would just explode them out of that complacency. For those who are just surrounded by stuff and they've oriented their whole life towards stuff, would this be the day that they would replace you with their stuff? However you choose to work, we pray you, Holy Spirit, every every heart, every mind, help orient us around you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing.